Welcome to the podcast series, The New Student Pharmacist, where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest and I. Students, it is so good, so exciting to have you in lecture today. It's definitely a privilege and honor. It is a treat. Just want to remind everyone, you are not alone. This is an academic community. Remember to get help from university services if needed. Never give up. Never give up. Keep trying. We're here to help you be intelligent, successful, and responsible scientists. However, at the end of the day, you must be responsible, intelligent, and hardworking. I want to remind you, don't give up. It may be challenging, it may be hard. Find strategies, find resources, meet with people, network, do what you can. It's worth it. You are smart enough, you are good enough, you are worth the effort and the fight. Keep it up. So, um, today we're going to be going through a few advanced topics. I just want to give you a quick preview of some of the chemistry ideas. Uh, it's very valuable, uh, very useful, and I think it'll be uh, a good resource for you. Um, this book was written by myself and reviewed by one of my good colleagues and friends, Vincent Miranda. Um, so, it's dedicated to tens of people who have helped and inspired me, specifically my parents, doctors, Ferguson and Ferguson, uh, my brother, attorney Ferguson, and my sister. Uh, it's definitely, and his wife as well, my brother's wife as well, and those teachers in university and high school who helped make science accessible to me. So let's just go over it. Organic chemistry is a subject that requires effort, focus, and skill. These foundations have been selected after guided review and observations as to what concepts facilitate and support a good understanding as a student progresses through this discipline in chemistry. These foundations from the moiety to the metallics highlight with conceptual focus, key ideas, points and memory aids to support your success in organic chemistry. Learning organic chemistry is similar to building a house. It takes time, skill and persistent efforts. So let's begin. Of course, this will be an audio and a visual as well, depending on how you learn. 
The goal for this episode is to encourage those who are studying organic chemistry. I know from personal experience that organic chemistry can be at points, especially organic chemistry one, challenging because you're adjusting to a new paradigm per se and you are adjusting to a new set of content. But the thing you have to remember is with strategy and persistence, you can make it through it and do well and do your best. So some objectives that we want to remember. We want to learn the key definitions. We want to understand key ideas and the relevance of lower start structures. And we want to understand some simplified quantum mechanical concepts. Organic molecules can be defined as multiple atoms associated or bonded together, made primarily from carbon. In short, organic molecules are carbon-based molecules. So we have this the structure of cyanocobalamin. This is the structure I did my undergraduate thesis on, also known as vitamin B12. These molecules may or may not have the same molecular formula. In cases where the molecular formula is the same, but the structure is not the same, you have structural isomers. Some examples include acetone and dimethyl ether. Note, uh, when the constitution or the connectivity is not the same, you have constitutional isomers. Where the arrangement in 3D space is not the same, you have stereo isomers. In some instances, constitutional is sometimes interchanged with structural isomers. Now, subclasses of stereoisomers. You have optical isomers, which are molecules that rotate light differently, and their mirror images are non-superposable. Non-superposable. Otherwise known as enantiomers. Uh, and they are designated by EZRS. Entagen, Zusamen, Rectus, or Sinister. Geom geometric isomers, which are molecules that have non-identical mirror images. Um, that would be assistant trans. The arrangement around the plane of the double bond is different. Organic molecules can be linear. Linear molecular shape is observed with hydrogen cyanide or acetylene, or maybe planar, but, but trigonal, such as formaldehyde. Um, uh, formaldehyde, the structure for formaldehyde is cut off. Um, the other hydrogen. Also, the molecule can have a 3D arrangement such as methane existing as a tetrahedral molecule. So it's important to remember that molecules are multiple atoms bonded together and compounds are a type of molecule in which you have multiple heteroatoms bonded together. So the atoms are different in that case. So let's talk about the structure of 3D molecules. The structure of 3D molecules can be predicted using an application of correctly drawn Lewis dot structures, which is valence shell electron pair repulsion theory, also known as glepsinium theory. VESPA, that's one way to say it, involves valence bond theory, showing all valence electrons and including bonding and non-bonding electrons in some cases referred to as lone pairs, and maximizing separation in 3D space so as to minimize repulsions connected to Coulomb's law in the greater distance, in that greater distance minimizes potential energy, so greater distance between like charges minimizes potential energy, and the converse is true in that when you increase or decrease the distance between unlike charges, you also minimize potential energy. So VESPA is an alternative that can inform and start the journey in us understanding molecular geometry, whether it be the linear alkynes, the trigonal planar arrangements of the carbon atoms and some alkenes, 
or the tetrahedral arrangement of carbon atoms around some carbon atoms and alkanes. Another alternative involves using quantum mechanics that uses wave functions that are mathematical descriptions of electron probability distributions to produce atomic orbitals. There are some limitations in this method as it pertains to accuracy, as with the previous method, VESPA, considering the theoretical simplifications that I use. Overall, the goal is to gain a better understanding as to what occurs in nature. For example, for example, with quantum mechanics, we can step into hybridization theory and use mathematical mixing of wave functions to further our understanding of what is observed in nature. With the same goal through ideas of valence bond theory, we can predict the bond angles for methane, specifically the intermolecular HH bond angle in methane, hydrogen-hydrogen bond angle in methane. The deviations, however, that are observed and hybridization accounts for those deviations with explanations. Those explanations entail the ideas that linear arrangements have carbon atoms that are sp hybridized, 1 sp plus 2 p's. Trigonal plane arrangements have carbon atoms that are sp2 hybridized, 1 sp2 plus 1 p. And tetrahedral arrangements have carbon atoms that are sp3 hybridized, 1 sp3 plus, plus 0 p. Uh, other hybridizations occur less frequently in mainstream organic chemistry. However, with higher geometries common in common with inorganic compounds, there can occur trigonal bipyramidal sp3d or octahedral sp3d2. So note, quantum mechanics also involves the use of molecular orbital theory to understand other interactions, but that will be discussed later. With the same focus, quantum mechanics also enables chemists to speak on regional electron densities. Um, also, it's important to know that double bonds possess a sigma bond and a pi bond, and triple bonds have one sigma, two pi. So, some questions you want to think about. What is organic chemistry and what is the historical origin of it? What is one class of organic compounds? What are three different types of isomers? Explain the valence bond theory in general simple terms. What is one molecular example where valence bond theory does not accurately explain what occurs in molecules? What are the hybridization of carbon atoms in acetonitrile? What are the designations of sigma and pi for the bonds in acetonitrile? So let's keep going. We're going to have a quick break and then we're going to continue talking about functional groups and other ideas. Okay, so let's go. Functional groups and other ideas. So you want to understand what is a functional group, understand the key format for organic nomenclature, and understand the role of intermolecular forces. Functional groups are characteristic parts of molecules that convey specific chemical properties to the molecules that possess them. Functional groups do numerous things, but mainly they enable us to compartmentalize information about molecules, compounds, and reactions. Functional groups do give us insight into chemical interactions, such as intermolecular interactions, as well as give us more information in understanding the properties of molecules. This includes the physical properties, boiling points and melting points, and solubilities. 
Considering the usefulness of functional groups, they also possess a characteristic molecular fingerprint that is detected in many ways, namely in spectra, so IR spectra, which really gives you a fingerprint as to the functional groups within the molecule, and that will be discussed later. So case in point, we have an example of phenol right there. So we have types of molecules and their properties. There are several types of molecules in the world. However, in the discipline of organic chemistry, there are specific molecules that are discussed frequently, including these. You have your alkanes. Alkanes, otherwise known as paraffins, are saturated hydrocarbons and aliphatic compounds. These molecules form a series of homologs with a repeating methylene unit and with the general formula CnH2n plus 2 and ending with the suffix ane. For example, in increasing order from 1 to 5, we have methane CH4, ethane C2H6, propane C3H8, butane C4H9, pentane C5H12. The following prefixes are hex for 6 carbons, hept for 7 carbons, oct for 8 carbons, non for 9 carbons, dec for 10 carbons. These prefixes for meth to dec are applicable throughout the naming of organic compounds, alkanes, alkenes, alkynes, alcohols, alcohols, etc. And there are lots of ways you can code this information, even when it comes to heterocycles, whether it be ir, et, ir, et, ep, dash, ep, ir, et, ep, dash, ep. So there are lots of ways you can code the information for different heterocycles. You can discuss that, uh, chunking on that mnemonic later. So air, oxyrane, oxetane, oxane, oxalane, oxeptane, all those things. We can discuss that later. So alkenes, otherwise known as olefins, are unsaturated hydrocarbons and they are considered aliphatic compounds. They contain at least one double bond, forming a homologous series with the formula CnH2n. These, these are alkenes now. These molecules end with a suffix "-ene". So alkynes, otherwise known as acetylenes, are unsaturated compounds, having a triple bond. These molecules form a homologous series with a general formula CnH2n-2. These molecules end with the suffix "-ine". There are several other molecules that form a homologous series within their groups, including carboxylic acids and aldehydes. You also have alcohols. Alcohols whose main functional group for identification is the hydroxyl group. It is notably priority in nomenclature practice. Exceptions include carboxylic acids according to the IUPAC. Alcohols contain one or more hydroxyls forming a homologous series, CnH2n plus 1OH. Alcohols are aliphatic and typically end with the suffix all. So let's talk about intermolecular forces and other properties. With functional groups comes certain properties such as specific boiling points and melting points as well as critical temperatures. The temperature around which a vapor is not easily, uh, does not easily undergo a phase change to a liquid and many other physical properties. 
However, beneath the surface of physical properties are the chemical features or interactions known as intermolecular forces, which influence and enable comparative predictions and physical properties. Namely, there are key forces to remember. You have your dipole-dipole forces. These are forces which occur between molecules, intermolecular, with a dipole moment or a significant dielectric constant. These molecules are otherwise known as polar. These intermolecular forces, IMFs, are relatively strong. A relatively stronger version of this is the H-bond or hydrogen bond intermolecular force. So you have your hydrogen bonding. It is a stronger force, sometimes referred to as a strong dipole-dipole force. This is a relatively strong, some consider it the strongest, of the IMFs. It occurs in water and other molecules with hydrogen bonds to nitrogen, oxygen, and fluorine. Then you have your iron dipole. This occurs between ions and polar molecules, for example with salvation of sodium chloride crystals in water. Then you have London dispersion forces. London dispersion forces occur in all molecules and are based off of the columbic interactions between transient, in essence temporary, dipoles. These electrostatic forces result in transient interactions between molecules. Then you have Van der Waals forces. Now a weak force that consists of two kinds, including the Van der Waals force, which is discussed in short, is where um, more elaboration can be found in other texts, in other episodes. It is worth noting that IMFs and their strengths are based off of functional groups, chemical structure, and the types of chemical bonding in those molecules, so intramolecular bonding. So what's inside influences what occurs on the outside. Composition influencing function. Anyway, chemical bonding, you have polar covalent bonding. Covalent bonding occurs between atoms with significant electronegativity differences. So this is polar covalent bonding. Specifically, this bonding occurs with heteroatoms, which refers to different non-metal atoms. So different non-metal atoms. Many times, the Pauline scale is used as a reference for ranges to determine the type of bonding arrangement occurring between atoms. If bonding, though considered a theoretical construct, is viewed on a spectrum, polar covalent bonding would exist around the middle. Then we have covalent bonding. This is also non-polar covalent bonding. This is almost at the other another end of the bonding spectrum where there is less significant difference in electronegativity. So then you have ionic bonding. This is at the other end of the bonding spectrum. This occurs between metals and non-metals. For example, in sodium chloride, there's a large difference in electronegativity. Salvation. Salvation is dependent on many factors, including the principle like dissolves like, and ideas such as hydrophilicity and hydrophobicity. Hydrophilicity and hydrophobicity. These terms refer to the molecule's stance in relation to water, whether it has a significant affinity for water, hydrophilic, water-loving, or less significant affinity for water, hydrophobic, water-hating. The tendency of molecules is as follows. Polar and ionic compounds tend to be hydrophilic, compared to covalent and non-polar compounds which tend to be hydrophobic. 
Nomenclature, according to the IUPAC, is based off of four main parts. Prefix, locant, parent chain, suffix. The prefixes normally denotes the number of each substituent or functional group attachments. Prefixes include di, tri, tetra. The locant, which is the number that describes the functional group attachment or the substituent's position. The parent chain. This is normally the longest continuous chain in the molecule. The suffix. This is based off of the presiding or prioritized functional group chain or bonding arrangement, single, double, or triple. Suffixes are typically classical in ending, with ane referring to the alkanes, ene referring to alkenes, ine referring to alkynes, amine, amines, amide, amides, oic, carboxylic acid, ate, esters, own, ketones, dehyde, aldehyde. Key facts to note, the alcohol's functional group hydroxyl is normally prioritized overall. Substituents are transcribed or outlined in the name based on the relative alphabetical order, so ethyl before methyl, and that pattern continues. So key overall idea, and I'll repeat this twice. Prefix, locant, parent chain, suffix. Prefix, locant, parent chain, suffix. Prefix, locant, parent chain, suffix, generally. So you can look up further ideas about IUPAC nomenclature in other texts. So some questions to consider. What is a functional group? And name several examples of functional groups. What are three types of organic molecules? What is an intermolecular force? Explain dipole-dipole forces. What is one molecular example where intermolecular forces explain a physical property such as boiling point? What is one difference between hydrogen bonding and London dispersion forces? explain the overall process of naming simple organic compounds. So if you want, so just an aside, quick aside, if you want more information into heterocycles, there's a phenomenal chemist, his name is Dr. Barron. He has lots of resources out there for heterocycles. So feel free to look into that very good resource, very brilliant chemist. So let's keep going. Concept development three, structures, conformations, and projections. So one things we want to do and, and also, just remember, this episode is primarily dedicated to those in general chemistry as well as those who are in organic chemistry with the thrust that we want to encourage and help each other as we go along in our scientific careers. So, objectives. Understand and be able to draw Lewis electron dot structures, condensed structures, and bond line structures. Understand and be able to draw different conformations, primarily those of cyclohexane, Understand and be able to draw and identify Fischer projections and Newman projections. So structures are diagrammatic representations of different molecules, and they provide a means of understanding what is occurring in nature. There are a variety of different structures used in chemistry. The main examples in this episode would be Lewis electron dot structures, condensed structures, and bond line structures. So Lewis dot structures, named after your boy Gilbert N. Lewis, a brilliant scientist. They are built on some key ideas such as the arms valency and the octet rule. There are specific exceptions for period three with sulfur and arsenic, for example, and beyond. Valency. Valency refers to the amount of electrons an atom will lose, many times resulting in a positively charged iron cation. Gain. Many times resulting in a negatively charged iron, anion, or shale, typically occurring in covalent molecules, in order to have a stable, noble gas configuration. Ground state, of course. Valency can be determined using the periodic table. 
The group number, the vertical column numbers for main group elements typically in the periodic table is designated the valency. The valency corresponds normally with charge, oxidation number, and its subsequent sign is dependent on the type of atom, its reactivity, and what it is reacting with. So, key points to note. Valency can be shown quickly using Lewis dot structures and orbital arrangements can be explained simply um, in some ways with the Bohm model. Doctet rule now. Doctet rule is a principle with applications in resonance theory, simple chemical mechanisms, and reactions. The octet rule is based on the idea of atoms gaining, sharing, or losing electrons in order to have a complete octet. And in this context, we're referring to eight outer electrons. There are exceptions. For example, some atoms may lose electrons to possess the electron configuration of helium, two outer electrons. However, for the most atoms, in period one and period two, in the periodic table of elements, those elements obey the octet rule generally. This rule is helpful in predicting reactivity and explaining simply the rationale for certain chemical reactions. So from period three onward, there are exceptions. So let's think about the rules for writing Lewis electron dot structures. So NPSEM, note the total amount of valence electrons. Place single bonds between each atom. Subtract two electrons for every single bond added. Eliminate or note the remainder amount of electrons and minimize formal charge as best as possible. So for atoms and ions, consider the group number primarily an electron configuration. For molecules, start by determining the total electron count among the atoms in the molecules. Draw single bonds between each atom, subtract two electrons for each single bond, add extra bonds when necessary, for example, carbon-oxygen bonds in aldehydes and ketones. Bonding arrangement is typically in the form of a double bond. Ladies and gentlemen, you must know and observe the trends. After all the necessary extra bonds have been denoted, subtract the correct amount of electrons for the extra bonds added. Typically, with the remaining electrons, denote them as lone pairs around the relevant atoms. So let's keep going. Condensed structures. Condensed structures are important in the process of understanding what bond line structures represent and show. In condensed structures, all of the hydrogen bonds are attached to the carbon, for example, S2 bromobutane, you can see here. So bond line structures are the next step after condensed structures. These show only the carbon framework with each carbon represented by a bend in the chain and the hydrogen not denoted, but inferred or assumed to the point or a complete octet around the carbon atom. This means the hydrogens are not shown, but implied to the point that the valency of carbon is satisfied. For example, we see there, bondline structures are useful and efficient. They save time. We can see an example of a bondline structure right there for benzene. Now conformations. Conformations are molecules that differ only by rotations around single bonds. You may have heard of conformers, rhodomers, otherwise characterized as sigma bonds. These alternate rotations affect the potential energies of the molecules, either increasing as seen in the eclipse conformation or decreasing it as seen in the anti-conformation. 
Confirmation's potential energies are attributed to ring strain, which is based off of the angle strain and the torsional strain. Angle strain is caused by the alternate bond angles that have deviated from the idealized bond angle suggested in Vespa. Torsional strain is caused by repulsion due to the dispersion forces, an intermolecular force, and this can cause steric hindrances. So as you progress further in your career in science, you'll hear the two whistling, whistling concepts, two echoing concepts in the halls of organic chemistry. You have sterics and electronics. So confirmations can be experimentally described using a graph of dihedral, dihedral angle versus potential energy. As you study this some more, you encounter things like carplus correlation, um, all of that are good stuff, a lot of good stuff. So typically cyclorexane is plotted showing the potential energy of the different confirmations in there or in increasing potential energies. The chair, the twist boat, the boat, the half chair, and the chair. Chair, chair, twist boat, chair, half chair, twist boat, half chair, chair. It's important when you start learning about this to be able to draw your chairs correctly. Chair, half chair, twist boat, boat, twist boat, half chair, chair. So CHT, BTHC. CHT, BTHC. Chair, half chair, twist boat, boat, twist boat, half chair, chair. Projections. In chemistry, there are many types of projections. However, two that are frequently encountered are the Newman projection and the Fisher projection. So Newman projections are structures from a specific perspective. We look down a specific single bond between atoms and draw the other attachments in respect to those two atoms. For example, butane is drawn. So picture yourself looking down the axis of a single bond, C2 to C3 of butane, or C2 to C3 in some other molecule. Or to draw the Newman projection. Here we see an example of a Newman projection. Then you have your Fisher projections. These are typically seen whether your carbohydrates and your hexoses and all those other good stuff. They involve another representation from a different perspective. The molecule is drawn from top to bottom, normally with anomeric carbon at a designated end. Generally, the functional group attachments are on the sides, which are seen as wedges that are out of the plane of the paper. And the top and bottom of projection is seen as groups on the dashed. Another bond designation uses a squiggly line, which represents a single bond out and behind the plane of the paper. So the projection is typically used with carbohydrates, especially simple carbohydrates. So you can see an example of R, one bromo, one chloroethane. And then you can see another example of thalidomide. Plastic molecule is also discussed when we dis when we introduce the key ideas associated with stereochemistry and how important it is even when it comes to medicines and their use and effects in the human body. So let's talk about some questions. What is the lowest electron dot structure of oxygen? What are the key ideas for drawing lowest electron dot structures? Explain the concept of valency. Explain the octet rule. What is one exception to the octet rule? Draw the bond line structure of anthocene. 
explain the overall order of stability for cyclohexane conformations. Remember, we go chair, after twist both, chair, half chair, twist both, both, twist both, half chair, 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 half chair, twist both, both, twist both, half chair, chair, CHTBTHC, CHTBTHC, for those who need to know that. Okay, so let's talk about chirality and isomerism. You want to know key definitions. Definitions of words such as isomer, chiral, and conformers. Understand the concepts of stereoisomerism, chirality. Understand the label and van, label van rule. So, let's keep going. Isomers as defined earlier are molecules with the same molecular formula but different in structural arrangement space, connectivity, or geometry around the bonding arrangement. All those differences aforementioned define a subclass of isomers, be it structural, so structural isomers, arrangement in space, stereoisomers, or connectivity, constitutional isomers. Each subclass has its own significance. Stereoisomers or spatial isomers are molecules with the same molecular formula but different three-dimensional spatial arrangements. A stereoisomer has a stereogenic center which is a location in the molecule where the interchange of two groups in space results in a new stereoisomer. A subgroup of stereogenic centers is a chiral center, which typically refers to a stereogenic center with a sp3 hybridization or tetrahedral geometry. Every chiral center is a stereogenic center, but not every stereogenic center is a chiral center. Stereoisomers can be further divided into other categories such as enantiomers, non-superposable mirror images, diastereomers, non-identical mirror images, isomers, isomers as a result of restrictions and bond rotations. Um, so enantiomers, enantiomers are optical isomers. These optical isomers are molecules that are non-superposable. Enantiomers typically have chiral centers or a chiral center. Enantiomers are very significant in the pharmaceutical industry with specific enantiomers in drugs having specific effects. This is seen with the classic example of thalidomide, ibuprofen, and darvon, where stereospecificity contributes a large role in determining therapeutic potential and therapeutic effects. Enantiomers are typically designated by the signets of absolute configuration, which are R, rectus, and S, sinister. Mixtures of both enantiomers are called racemic, Usually these are mixtures of equal proportions. The process of forming both enantiomers as products is known as racemization. And if you do some more research, you'll hear about Viedma ripening. You can do the research and find out about it. So the molecules are also designated by the relative configuration, which are dextrorotatory D and levorotatory. And that refers to their optical rotation, how they rotate light. So... Let's talk about assigning configurations. Dextrorotatory or levorotatory must be assigned experimentally, typically by the proper application of an optical device such as a polarimeter. To observe and measure how the molecule rotates light and to what extent or degree it rotates it. Absolute configurations can be assigned using a priority numerical labeling system such as the Kahn Ingle Prelog priority rules. These rules give priority based on atomic mass. Larger atoms have the highest priority 
on the smallest or least wing ions have the least priority, typically hydrogen in most molecules. So if you have hydrogen, typically it's going to be on the dash. Okay, in the back of the printed paper. And then your largest priority, thing that has the highest priority is going to be coming out at you. Okay, so there you have S1 bromo 1 chloropropane. So let's talk about diastereomers. This is a subclass of optical isomers. Optical isomers, a subclass of optical isomers, known as geometric isomers. Diastereomers are isomers with the same molecular formula but different arrangements in space. That results in non-identical mirror images. These can typically be identified by first assignment of the absolute configuration of the stereogenic centers, then comparison of the mirror images to determine whether they are identical or not. So that's a suggested way you can do it. Subclass of diastereomers are cis-trans isomers and conformers, which can further be divided into rotomers. So you have your easy isomerism and your cis-trans isomerism. As dextratory and level rotatory is relative assignment for stereochemistry, so is cis and trans. Cis and trans isomerism allows for the denoting of the spatial arrangements based on light groups, for example, trans 1,2-dichloroethene or cis 1,2-dichloroethene. This relative system, cis or trans, can become obscure very quickly. So to provide a more meticulous system, the Kahn Ingold prelog priority rules are used to label the substituents on the double bond using entogen E or opposite and zusamen or same side. So entogen E opposite zusamen same side. This system aforementioned provides more clarity with stereochemistry. As stated earlier, the Kahn Ingold prelog priority rules give the highest priority to the largest substituent or the substituent with the greatest atomic mass and the following substituents are labeled with the numbers 2, 3, 4 based on atomic masses. So you number your substituents. Basically, you assign your priorities, you number your substituents. It's good to do this with your modeling kits, your modeling sets. And if you can't afford it, you can use gumdrops and toothpicks. Just make sure you use different colors for different types of atoms. But assign your priority, arrange it, visualize it in 3D space. You may have to build a model. And from there, you see 1, 2, 3, 4. Rectus, one, two, three, four, sinister. It goes clockwise. If it, the substituents, if the substituents are ordered such that they go in a clockwise way, rectus. If they go or they arrange such that they follow a anticlockwise path or trajectory, we call it sinister. So conformers and rotomers. A conformer is an arrangement or conformation of a molecule based on a rotation or based on rotation of single bonds that resulted in a potential energy minimum. A classic example of a conformer is with cyclohexane, which you have different conformers represented in the graph below. A rhodomer is just a conformation of a molecule that results from another rotation of a molecule's single bonds. And you have the anomers, isomers, and isomer formed due to the geometric radiation on the certain atoms in specific molecules. Anomers are typically seen and described in carbohydrates where the designation of alpha or beta is used. Alpha D-glucopyranose, beta D-glucopyranose. And you have the epimers. 
An epimer, normally found in diastereomeric pairs, is a stereoisomer that differs in configuration at any point in the molecule where changing the position of the two substituents results in the formation of a new stereoisomer. Basically, an epimer is an isomer that differs in configuration at any stereogenic center. So, Libel van Hoff's rule. If there are n stereogenic centers with four different substituents attached, there are two to the n different stereoisomers possible. So, if you have n stereogenic centers, there are two to the n different stereoisomers possible. Okay, so some questions to think about. What is an isomer? What are the different types of isomers? Explain the concept of enantiomers. What is a racemate? And even further research, you can look into what is VNM ripening. And you can talk about, uh, or just look into what is a diastereoisomer. What are two club classes of diastereoisomers? And then we can talk about explaining the Kahn Engel Prelop party rules for designating absolute configuration. So let's keep going. Nucleophilicity and electrophilicity. In it for the long run. Learn the definition of nucleophilicity and electrophilicity. Understand the trends with nucleophilicity and basicity or electrophilicity and acidity. So we want to understand those things. Those are our objectives for this reading. Nucleophilicity is a kinetic concept that describes the affinity of an atom or molecule for the nucleus of another atom, which is positively charged with the intended meaning of nucleus loving. So nucleophilicity, nucleus loving. This term is very important for understanding reactions and their mechanisms. Nucleophilicity refers to how willing, to what degree, or at what rate is an atom or molecule donating its electron density to another atom or molecule. The degree of nucleophilicity is defined by the rate of the reaction, specifically the rate of electron density donation. Generally, nucleophilicity when comparing a similar atom in multiple molecules uh, follows Lewis basicity some contexts. Um, also, when a nucleophilic atom is different, there may be no relationship between nucleophilicity and basicity. So that's something to note. If the nucleophilic atom is different, there may be no relationship that you observe. Um, since dipole moments for each atom or molecule may be different, thus affecting polarizability, which is a large determining factor in nucleophilicity. So polarizability of the electron cloud a large determining factor in nucleophilicity. So it's very important to understand it. It's grounded in Columbic, it's grounded in Columbic forces. It can result in the formation of breaking of bonds as seen in the infamous nucleophilic attack and nucleophilic substitution. Let's talk about electrophilicity. Electrophilicity is a kinetic concept. It involves a reaction in which there is an acceptance of an electron pair. An electrophile is defined as an electron pair acceptor or an atom or molecular part that is electron-loving, electrophile. This term provides insight into mechanisms or reactions such as electrophilic aromatic substitution, electrophilic substitution, and electrophilic addition. Electrophilicity is it basically involves the measured degree or extent, generically speaking, of how much an atom or molecule is willing to accept electron density from another atom or molecule. So, some questions to consider. 
What are some key ideas associated with the concept of nuclear felicity? What are some key trends with nuclear felicity? Explain the connection between Lewis basicity and nuclear felicity. What is the connection between Lewis acidity and electrophilicity? Explain the significance of PKB. Some aspects of the concept of nuclear felicity. So let's talk about spectroscopy and some instrumentations. Spectroscopy involves the study of the interactions of electromagnetic radiation and matter. Spectroscopy has a key role in organic chemistry. It contributes to informing many processes, including retrosynthetic analyses, structural elucidation, and total synthesis. Spectroscopy and spectrometry are different. Spectroscopy refers to the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation and matter, while for spectrometry refers to the measurements of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation and matter. So measurements versus just the study. You have UV spec. That's an example of a diagram. You have a light source going to your scanning monochromator. You have a motor that's spinning. It goes to the sample cuvette. And you go to your detector, your amplifier, and then it's displayed. For your sample cuvette, you also have a reference cuvette as well. So UV-vis spectroscopy is an analytical technique that involves the use of ultraviolet or visible light in order to analyze a sample in a cuvette. This technique can be used to quantify, detect, test, support, or support structure elucidation. And aids in determining molecular geometry and to study the connective reactions. So when you think of UV-vis spec, also think about Woodward Hoffman rules. One of the main ideas behind the use of UV-vis spectrophotometers is the principle of absorbance. Um, you can look into Bayer's law and also you can look into so Bayer's law absorption is equal to epsilon molar absorptivity, absorptivity constant um, B pathylene C concentration. Then you have atomic absorption spectroscopy. AAS, go from your light source to your sample to your detector to your computer. It has many uses involving clinical, geological, biological, metallurgical, atmospheric, and also in the pharmaceutical industry. Then you have your IR spec. You go from your Nernst glow, this is just a version of it, to the Michelson interferometer, to your sample, to your detector, to your computer. So IR can be used to detect the functional group moieties that exist in the sample, the relative location or proximity of the information. The relative location or proximity of functional groups, that information can be obtained. Um, it's based on the assumption that atoms behave as simple harmonic oscillators that each vibration uh, is occurring within the molecule. You have the NMR spec, in which you go from your RF radiation generator to your NMR tube, to your RF receiver, to your computer. NMR spec provides information on the chemical environment the nuclei of atoms are situated in. This type of spec is normally used in structure elucidation and in some cases, structure determination. This analytical, this analytical technique involves several concepts, some such as um, shim and all this other good stuff. So gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, you have your GCMS, you go from your sample holder to your capillary column, to electron ionization, to your ion trap, to the computer. It's an analytical technique that involves both analytical techniques of gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. 
This is a method in which components of a mixture are separated using chromatography and analyzed and characterized using mass spectrometry. Gas chromatography is a separation technique in which chemical substances are volatilized and separated by their relative boiling points, which is dependent on the chemical properties of the molecules. Mass spectrometry is an analytical technique that involves the ionization of chemical species into different ions of different atomic masses and the sorting of ions into a unique spectrum based on their mass to charge ratio. So some key features are what are some key features of three questions are what are some key features of a UV-vis spectrometer? What are some key features with the infrared spectrometer? What is the Jacquinot advantage, so throughput advantage? Explain Felgate's advantage, multiplex advantage. Explain the differences between polar and non-polar compounds in the GCMS instrument. So we can talk about inorganic and organic metallics. This is the first part. Diatomic halogens have chemical significance as seen in several areas of organic chemistry. Whether in the presence of light, organic solvent, or peroxides, they can result in the formation of halogenated variable groups, which can vary from alkyl halides to acyl chlorides. Diatomic halogens, when substituted in the organic molecule, can result in new properties both chemical and physical, stereochemistry, intermolecular forces, as well as conformations. Also, the chemical reaction environment also affects reduced activity in the reaction. Also, diatomic halogens can be used to test the presence of olefins, namely bromine methanolkene, and the result is a colorless solution. Diatomic halogens have versatile use in organic chemistry. So, several inorganic reagents are used as reducing agents or oxidizing agents to convert carbonyl compounds, carbonyl containing compounds, in primary and secondary substitutes. Hydrocarbons to primary and secondary alcohols, and in another direction, it can convert alcohols to carboxylic acid. You have your sodium borohydride used to do a stepwise reduction from aldehydes, ketones, to alcohols. You have LiAlH for thymolonohydride, very dangerous, flammable, and powerful reducing agent that reduces carboxylic acids and other carbonyl containing compounds to alcohols. You have PCC. Peridium chlorochromate, which is used to oxidize. It functions to oxidize primary alcohols to aldehydes and secondary alcohols to ketones. Peridium chlorochromate is made by reacting chromium trioxide with hydrochloric acid to form chlorochromic acid, which is reacted with pyridine to form PCC. And you have the Jones reagent. It is an organic, inorganic reagent as used to oxidize. It functions typically as chromic acid and involves oxidizing primary alcohols to carboxylic acids and secondary alcohols to ketones. The Jones reagent is a good oxidizing reagent. Then you have KMnO4, potassium permanganate. There's another inorganic reagent that results in oxidation of primary alcohols to carboxylic acids and secondary alcohols to ketones. Always remember or consider the temperature at which that oxidation is occurring. Very important. Then you have PCL5, a molecule with many uses, namely the interconversion of carboxylic acids and acid anhydrides to acyl chlorides. Then you have sodium cyanoborohydride. It is used to reduct is used in reductive amination, resulting in the formation of amines from the reduction of the cyanide portion of the reagent. There are some arrangements there are some rearrangements that occur when this is being taken place. This is another example of nucleophilic attack occurring. Meanwhile, sodium borohydride is serving, serving as the infamous reducing agent.
So some of the metallics you have your grignants. Grignant reagents are some of the first encountered organic metallics for an undergraduate organic chemistry student. These molecules are composed of, organic, of an organic variable group, a magnesium atom, and a halide. It is normally used to attach organic variable groups to a carbonyl, meanwhile reducing the oxygen to a hydroxyl, thus making an alcohol. Grignard reagents are very useful, however, because these are reactive even with water. All materials used in the reaction to avoid water contamination must be lab oven dried. Then you also have Gilman reagents. Gilman reagents are organocuprate attacking as a nucleophile to rings with an unsaturated region, a kinyl, or to an alkyl halide to form an alkyl substituted molecule. Then you have your regular nucleophiles such as metallic alkoxylates such as sodium ethoxide, magnesium ethoxide, which are used as nucleophiles to attack a variable group, whether in an SN2 or E2 mana, as well as in displacement reactions. So, here are some questions. What are some examples of substitutions using diatomic halogens? What is an example of an oxidized alcohol? Explain the use of sodium borohydride in reduction reactions. Where does the organoboring occur in the reaction schema and why is this chemically significant? Can nucleophilic attack serve as a means of oxidation or reduction? So let's talk about some radiochemistry principles. Understand the fundamentals of radiochemistry. Understand Markovnikov's rule and anti-Markovnikov's rule. So Markovnikov's rule, he who has more gets more. Anti-Markovnikov, he who has more gets less. Understand Zaitsev's rule and Hoffman's rule. So let's keep going. This will be the last section that we go through today. More to come later on. So regiochemical principles come from regiochemistry comes from the Latin word regionum, meaning direction. Regiochemistry provides and describes the principles involved in the directionality of, or position and placement of reactants to form the product. Regiochemistry is very important. As you progress, you'll hear about things being regiodivergent or regioselective. Reagents used can cause a specific radiochemical result or result in the opposite of what would normally occur. So you have Markovnikov's rule, put simply, he who has more gets more. Markovnikov's rule is in the addition of a halide to an unsymmetrical alkene, the hydrogen goes to the carbon with the greatest number of hydrogens and the halide goes to the other carbon. In another way, this rule states that the halide adds so as to form the more stable carbocation intermediate. Then you have your antimicrovnicol, which is the reverse, he who has more gets less, in which the carbon with the greatest number of hydrogens does not receive the hydrogen but the most electrophilic portion of the molecule. For example, in hydroboration oxidation, in the presence of peroxides, the borohydride adds to the less substituted carbon of the hydrogen and the hydrogen adds to the more substituted carbon. Keep in mind hydroboration oxidation, which is done in the presence of peroxides. Or in this case, we're referring to it being done in the presence of peroxides. However, the stability comes about because the electron density shifts. This is one way to describe the mechanism. The electron density shifts to the electrophilic borohydride, resulting in it possessing a partially negative charge. 
Lamont substituted carbon possessing a partially positive charge. This is indeed stable due to the electron density donating capacity of the alkyl group. In the discussions, we can talk about hyperconjugation. As character and the orbital overlap of the alkyl carbon, the alkyl group with the alkyl or electron donated substituent provides stability. So, Seitz's rule. Seitz's rule is the directionality principle in which the more substituted alkene is favored through the use of a small base such as ethoxide. Seitz's rule is significant and aids in predicting products and elimination reactions. So, Seitz's small base used to the more substituted alkene. So, Seitz's small and more substituted. So, Hoffman's rule. Hoffman's rule is another directionality principle. So, T. Hoffman, in which the less substituted alkene is favored through the use of a huge or large base, such as tetrodoxide. Hoffman's rule is also very significant in aids in predicting elimination reactions. So, the Hamann left postulate. In simple terms, it's basically the view of the potential energy hill continues in some ways as you follow through the potential energy journey, or the product resembles a molecular arrangement of the transition state, or the step of the RCD, the reaction coordinate diagram that's closest to the transition state in energy, typically the transition state will, remember, will resemble that. So what does the word radiochemistry mean? Was an example of a reaction that follows Markovnikov's rule. Explain anti Markovnikov's rule. What is Zaitsev's rule significant? Why is it significant in elimination reactions? Explain the significance of the Harman Leffler positive. Why are radiochemistry rules helpful in studying mechanisms? So types of reactions. Let's just go through these. You have your addition, substitution, elimination, reduction, oxidation, and rearrangement. Addition, put simply, is like a traditionally synergistic relationship. The two parts become one. Two different molecules are added together. Addition can be driven by nucleophiles, nucleophilic addition, or electrophiles. This type of reaction normally occurs in regions of high electron density and bond order, which is seen in compounds with multiple bonds. You have your substitution. Substitution is by definition a type of chemical group replacement. This can be driven by nucleophiles or electrophiles, as well as it can involve alkyl halides or RMR compounds, SN1s, SN2s, typically some of the first reactions encountered by an undergrad in OCHEM. Then you have eliminations. Eliminations involve the loss of a group of atoms from a molecule. This can result in the formation of an alkene or alkyne product. Elimination tends to result in a net increase of electron density for a particular molecule, which, if considered, makes sense since the overall process of loss and gain of electron density, density is usually presented mechanistically. Um, okay. Then you also have reduction in oxidation. Classically paired process in which one atom or molecule gains electron density while another loses electron density, which is reduction in oxidation, respectively. So, oil rig, oxidation, loss of electrons, addition of oxygen, removal of hydrogen, increased oxidation, state or number. And then, GLAD, cleaning of electrons, reduction is GLAD, oxidation is LARI. Reduction GLAD, gain of electrons, loss of oxygen, addition of hydrogen, decrease in oxidation state or number. So you have reduction occurs in organic reactions such as hydrogenation using rainy nickel or lithium hydride. Then you also have your rearrangements, which typically occur through your 1-2 methyl shifts or 
1,3 methyl shifts or 1,2 hydride shifts or 1,3 hydride shifts. Thermodynamic basis and rationale for these rearrangements occurring is that they lead to a more stable carbocation as the transition state or reaction intermediate. Many times the arrangement results in positive charge being situated on higher substitute carbons is presented as secondary or tertiary carbons. There are other categories for mechanistic classification. Polar under basic conditions. Example is a nucleophilic substitution under basic conditions. Polar under acid conditions. Example is an acid catalyzed hydration. about the background noise you have paracyclic an example is the 4 plus 2 cycle addition deals on the reaction the 4 plus 2 reaction refers to the number of electrons specifically pi electrons and you can look into Huckel's rule each atom so cyclic planar each atom sp2 and it must follow Huckel's rule 4n plus 2 pi electrons so if your free radical reactions, example is the free radical polymerization, metal mediated reactions. An example is the sodium metal mediated birch reduction. So some questions as we conclude. What are the key features of a substitution? What are the key features of elimination reactions? Explain the significance of rearrangement in terms of stability. And why is it important to know these types of reactions? listed in this concept development. So later on, we'll discuss different types of substitutions and different types of eliminations. But I want to remind everyone, you're not alone. You're in, we are all in this as a scientific community. Reach out to people if you need help. Get the help that you need. Strategize, plan, use the resources at your disposal. You can do it. People are rooting for you. Uh, keep up the good work. Glad to see that you're doing well. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, and this ends this episode of Lecture Chaos. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Delmar Larson. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Delmar Larson is a professor in the Department of Chemistry at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Larson received his PhD from the University of Chicago in Chemistry and did postdoctoral stints at the Free University in Amsterdam, studying biophysics and the University of Southern California, 
studying chemistry. In 2005, Dr. Larson moved to the University of California, Davis as an assistant professor. He was promoted to associate professor in 2012 and was promoted to full professor in 2019. Dr. Larson's current research interests extend across many scientific disciplines, including biophysics, physical chemistry, molecular biology, and computational modeling, with a common thread of investigating and characterizing rapid condensed phase dynamics. Dr. Larson is the founder and director of the LibreTex project, consisting of 12 independently operating and interconnected libraries that focus on augmenting post-secondary education in specific fields in both the STEM fields, the social sciences, and the humanities. Please welcome Dr. Okay, Dr. Larson, thanks again for joining me. Um, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science? Well, uh, I, I've always enjoyed pursuing truth, uh, or at least what I thought was truth. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until later on in my education that I understand that science is not entirely that, uh, if you you understand science properly. Um, but it's that desire of trying to identify truth that has uh, guided me in terms of what, we, what I, I do um, and what I've been doing for the last um, multiple decades. Wow, that's good, that's good. So can you give me one specific example of where this occurred, where you were seeking for truth or going after truth or the desire was evident in some of your experiences, whether it be in research or in the work you've done with LibreTex, which um, I, from my understanding, I would say that has created opportunities for a lot of people to gain access to more information and to further their skills and develop their acumen in terms of the chemical sciences and other areas as well. So, well, well I mean, definitely. So, uh, as a research level professor, I have obligations in terms of maintaining a research laboratory. In my field of science is ultrafast laser spectroscopy of primarily photoreceptor-based systems okay. and other photoactive systems. And then in the last 13, 14 years, we've been pursuing the LibreTex project. In its earlier incarnation, it was called the ChemWiki which is meant more of a dissemination of content in order to facilitate the education of uh, students, uh, both in America and abroad, because that's a, a guiding principle of that. Uh, I, I would say the desire for pursuing truth uh, uh, is more in the former category rather than the LibreText project, which is a very different uh, perspective on doing things. Uh, okay. And, you know, I, I should be clear about that. Um, you know, basically every manuscript that, uh, you know, of the hundred or so manuscripts that I've published uh, pursues some level of what we consider to be truth. That being said, I should be specific, and this is a common issue that uh, lay people have in terms of science, that while science 
pursues truth and use truth uh, in quotations is actually uh, is more pursuing models in order to interpret reality under the hopes that we identify truth. But you can argue from a philosophical argument, we will never get there. Um, and that's particularly important, especially in uh, current discourse of science, uh, especially in America, about uh, recognizing the limitations of science. Uh, and if you believe that science resolves truth, then uh, when science naturally evolves, it starts, to, truth shouldn't naturally evolve, uh, at least truth of the underlying material. And, and so there's a disconnect that, that's in, involved in that. But nonetheless, uh, it, it's, uh, truth and knowledge has always been something that's uh, guided me uh, far more than other issues like grades, for example, uh, much to the displeasure of uh, some of my uh, high school instructors. <clears throat> okay. uh, so, so. Um, okay. I can certainly discuss any manuscript that you may want in, in more detail, if I could remember uh, the manuscripts that you may be interested in, but it, it's, a, it's a general aspect. And it, it underlies all uh, research uh, active faculty. Uh, they're constantly, be, uh, constantly pursuing these scientific uh, endeavors. Okay. okay, that's good, that's good. So my, another question I have, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? How do you see, how do you maintain view of your end goals, uh, even in research, even when you encounter whether it be a challenge or something of that sort or an obstacle, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture? Well, um, I would say the answer is poorly uh, these days. Uh, the, the, everything is in, in, in sheer chaos uh, and I'm not entirely sure where things are going to lie in the upcoming months uh, or even years. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's obviously important in order to have a good uh, uh, balance between work and home life uh, and such. Uh, unfortunately, many of my colleagues and myself included uh, don't have a great balance of that. Um, so our work uh, is constantly uh, extended into our private life um, and I would say uh, that's I definitely am in that, in that category uh, <clears throat> and there's certainly a lot of uh, so I'm not in a great position in order to provide um, recommendations for people who are trying to see the uh, the balance between those things. in terms of the bigger picture of career um, the key point is to recognize that multiple career paths are available uh, and that you can switch from one to the other as needed. Uh, for example, uh, when I started as a professor 15 uh, years ago, it was research, research, research as the primary uh, uh, obligation or priority uh, in my, uh, my work life. The, in the last 10 years of that has been slowly transitioning into the LibreText project, as you mentioned before, uh, because that uh, I could see has a very uh, meaningful impact. Uh, and while research is very uh, fulfilling in many ways and many aspects, it can, it can have a, a, a paradigm shift of, uh, of all of culture and all of reality, or at least the way we view reality, uh, the vast majority of research uh, is incremental or uh, doesn't fall in line in that category. So it's hard to see the impact of what you're doing. You know, it's nice to see, you know, how many, what your age index is and how many citations and things like that. But in, when it's all said and done, uh, it's the LibreText project that really uh, helps to put me into a context of seeing the uh, impact of what I'm trying to do. And then that really uh, drives me in order to pursue it. 
Okay, that's good. That's very good. So as we continue, another question that comes to mind is, how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science? Um, well, I mean, it's really easy in order to go to uh, this quote that Einstein uh, gave uh, many years ago in terms of basically arguing that imagination is one of the most important aspects associated with doing good science. And that's very true. Uh, so it, it's the uh, scientists that are very rigid in the way that they view things oftentimes uh, have a very short half-life um, and, and are able to deal with the fact that ch things change and you be able to, uh, to deal with it. So uh, one of the nice things about being in a large university provides us uh, faculty that has the opportunity to be exposed to a wide range of different uh, activities, uh, research in a variety of different fields uh, and of, in um, and various ways of implementing things. Uh, and that right there uh, is probably one of the most important aspects associated with uh, maintaining uh, my ability in order to be adaptive uh, and creative to what's going on there. If I were in a much smaller institution um, with uh, far fewer faculty coming in, visitors, uh, speakers, and such like that, I think it'd be a harder opportunity or a harder chance for me to be able to maintain that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's very true. So, um, another question I have for you, how have you sought or found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? How, have you, how did you find it? Because uh, I think anyone, uh, any observer could say that you are thriving scientifically and intellectually. So how would you describe the process or the journey for you finding this place or right environment? Well, uh, as a chemist, you typically make a decision sometime in graduate school uh, and perhaps earlier about whether you want to pursue, pursue academia uh, or if you want to go into industry. Uh, and they have their different cultures and benefits and detractions associated with that. So that's the first point that needs to be done in order to decide uh, where to go. Uh, naturally, in both of those directions requires finding a uh, place to sit. Uh, uh, and uh, when it comes to academia, uh, it actually turns out that there are, if, if you want to do research level um, at the R1 institution, uh, there are uh, a handful, multiple handfuls of departments that you can go to um, uh, and you go on the market and, and such and you typically, uh, if you're lucky, get a handful of uh, offers that you're able to, to work from uh, and then you're largely stationary for a period of time so you don't have a lot of flexibility, um, knock on wood. Uh, many people do move around um, but uh, most faculty don't move around from one campus to another campus uh, and then that's largely where you're stuck and I use the term stuck quite loosely here it's not meant to be a negative uh, necessarily but uh, the mobility is uh, far less than what you can expect in uh, industry where you can go from one transition one spot to another spot part of the reason for that is in academia um, you have the opportunity of getting tenure, which provides a strong stability uh, and protection for your job, which is exceedingly important <laughs> right now in, the, in this COVID era. Um, so uh, that is tied into the position. So it, once you have that, you're less likely in order to move. Although when you do move, you oftentimes can negotiate to have tenure uh, come with you. Um, uh, 
so that's not meant to say that you, you're up in the, uh, it's random in terms of uh, where you find the right environment. Uh, once you come to the campus that you're at, then it's up to you to find your uh, colleagues that you're able to communicate with uh, and the community uh, uh, within the campus in order for you to be able to fit into and, and pursue that. And again, by being in a larger institution, I've been fortunate in order to be able to find uh, many uh, groups and many faculty that I've had great scientific relationships with uh, and collaborations in order to move forward. So it's important to always uh, look for these people in order to move forward. Okay, yes, that's true. That's very true. Um, as well as, how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? Well, I mean, one of the important things uh, to keep in mind with that question is that as, when you're running a research uh, program, you're running a research group, which means that you have graduate students, oftentimes undergraduate students, maybe postdoctoral research assistants and such like that. So you're intrinsically running a collaborative uh, group. Um, uh, and the more important aspect is how to run that group effectively. Um, and uh, unfortunately, many of us uh, learn that by trial and error less than, uh, being trained in terms of how to be an effective manager in order to run these students and move it forward. Um, so <clears throat> uh, that uh, collaborative aspect is baked into how research is typically done in academia. It's also baked into how uh, research is done in, in industry, although I know less about that, uh, in part because there's a lot of uh, return investment evaluations and uh, oversight and feedback in order to make sure that revenue and costs are all used effectively off of that. But I can't really comment confidently on that, uh, that culture. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, also, my question for you is, why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in? Why did you choose chemistry? You know, I, it's always been chemistry for me. Uh, it's okay. never been. A, <laughs> so let me phrase that. The biggest choice I had in college was what type of chemistry I was interested in. Okay. Whether, whether, and physical chemistry came out quite naturally because of my uh, interest in math and physics and such like that. As, uh, but I always had a desire for biological chemistry. In fact, for the first quarter uh, uh, at the University of Washington, uh, I was a biochemistry major uh, and then I switched over to physical chemistry but I, I overlap with biology physics and chemistry in my research okay so it sounds like you you have done work in biophysical chemistry yes okay um my question to you also is what specific area of physical chemistry really was your main interest was it thermo thermodynamics or quantum mechanics or was it a mixture of both no, I um, I love thermodynamics, uh, but I'm uh, but I'm a kineticist or a dynamicist at at heart. Uh, okay. <clears throat> um, uh, quantum mechanics is beautiful. Uh, statistical mechanics is beautiful. It's it's all it's all beautiful um, uh, when you get into the the, the details behind it. Um, uh, it so, um, you know, I was 
trained in graduate school as a dynamicist and specifically an ultra fast laser dynamicist. So dynamicist. So I was interested in things that are happening on a femtosecond, picosecond, and nanosecond time scale. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, before that in, uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was trained in a gas phase um, molecular beam uh, healing cluster uh, experiment with some mass spectrometry and a few other things associated with that. So I went from gas phase to condensed phase and uh, transitioned from uh, uh, dynamics in the, that are more uh, energy resolved to dynamics that are uh, uh, temporally resolved. Uh, okay. So. okay. Um. So you said it was always chemistry for you. So even in your doctoral studies, you didn't feel like changing your mind or you didn't consider changing course? Well, you know, if you talk to anyone who's gone through graduate school, typically, at least in America, which is on the average of about five years in order to get your PhD, uh, you get the blues right around the third year. Okay. Uh, And that's when you need, uh, that's when you start looking at uh, do you really want to do this uh, sort of thing? Now, that the, the magnitude of the blues uh, depends upon um, the, the healthiness of the relationship with your advisor uh, and your colleagues in the group, and, and that is invariably related to the campus that you're in. So some campuses are less healthy than other campuses. Okay. Um, but uh, certainly I went through the blues uh, in order to, to look at alternative uh, options out there. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I, I stuck with it uh, and moved forward and quite happy that I did. Yeah, and you could see the fruits of your labor, the success, as we see right now. Um, my last two questions for you. Do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? Uh, are you referring to ultrafast laser spectroscopy, to chemistry, academia specifically? or Academia to- specifically. Um, specifically towards undergraduates and incoming graduate students and current graduate students, so students in general. uh, I've seen a lot of students come in that may doubt themselves, uh, doubt their ability in order to move forward. Uh, And I've seen some graduate students that uh, overly inflate their expectations of how successful they're going to be based off of their intelligence, uh, how well they do in classes. Uh, And I think the single most important trait in order to be successful in graduate school is not the education, as I'm afraid it's not the intelligence, although that is always good. It's it's always the dedication, uh, how much effort you're willing to dedicate to your program and making it successful. as long as your your education, your intelligence meets a certain level, then it's just basically uh, how much skin are you willing to put into the game in order to move it forward. Uh, and and that is that's that I would say is the single most important uh, component associated with the success of a graduate student, and something I I, I encourage graduate students uh, to develop early, which is a good work ethic, and because that makes your advisor happy. Uh, okay. to see your progress. Uh, when your advisor happy, the letters of recommendation get stronger uh, and everything is a positive feedback in order to move forward. Uh, and then you can flip it around by saying a poor, poor work ethic typically doesn't get you very far at all uh, okay. for the same reason. So I've seen very intelligent people. Uh, 
in institutions I've been in before, you know, University of Chicago and, and Berkeley um, and other places uh, that have uh, collapsed and failed because they just didn't have the work ethic in order to be able to put the time in necessary to be successful in graduate school. So that's the number one thing that I would feel is important for uh, students to uh, cultivate. Yeah, I agree. Work ethic is very important. Um, so my last question for you, what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received to date? Uh, <laughs> it's really quite broad. Um, <clears throat> so if I were to target that towards students looking at graduate school programs, the most productive advice that I could give and that I have gotten uh, was that when you're looking at graduate programs uh, and you have been accepted at several graduate programs to go to the program that has the most number of faculty that you would like to work with. So if you have a campus that has a specific person that you definitively want to work with and no one else that you really want to work with, the odds of you getting into a specific program is not always a hundred percent. If it's a specific uh, graduate, specific a faculty member. So uh, having the secondary uh, options available uh, are exceedingly important in order to be able to move forward. So all graduate program, of all advice for, at that stage, uh, that's the one I think that's most important in selecting graduate programs um, uh, out there. Um, Everything else uh, is a function of the work ethic that I talked about before. You just continue on. You want to continue that uh, and move that forward um, uh, through every stage of what you're doing. At some point, uh, uh, so when you become a faculty member, uh, you have flexibility to be able to guide your research in the ways that you want. Um, and, and that's one of the aspects where the creativity that you brought up uh, a while ago is exceedingly important in order to find out where you want your research to go. Um, but that also gives you a bigger picture about, well, what do you want to do uh, in your research, in your activities? And you have in most, as a faculty, uh, especially as a tenured faculty member in, in most American institutions, and I think most institutions abroad, uh, you have a lot of freedom to decide about what you want to do. So for example, you mentioned the LibreTex project. That right there doesn't fold directly into this research active project uh, that is encouraged uh, for faculty in my position. Uh, nonetheless, I had the utility the freedom um, uh, in order to be able to pursue it. And I pursued it quite aggressively um, uh, where it's taken even some of the work ethic that I was talking about away from my research. Uh, but that's because uh, I value it at the same levels I value my research. So it's important to be flexible uh, and be dynamic and pursue what you want to pursue when you have the opportunities in order to do so. Okay, that's good. That's very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Larson, for joining me today. It is much appreciated. No worries. Sounds great. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening.
Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're so glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on the New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is someone from the past, so we're going to be looking at the past work of Dr. Paul Boyer, the Nobel Prize Laureate in Chemistry in the year 1997. So the rationale for this, it is possible to start the journey to understanding the great feats and triumphs of scientists in the past and present. Be determined and consistent, keep at it, be hopeful, unrealistic, persevere. So this is a continuation of the Think Tank series. Um, we're looking, we'll be looking at different speeches of Nobel Prize laureates in chemistry and other places as well, other areas as well, rather. And the analysis for today is Paul Boyer's Nobel Prize lecture. That's a text we're going to analyze. So for the video, for those who will see the video that will be uh, corresponding with this audio version in the podcast, as a picture of Paul Boyer receiving his Nobel Prize. Before Paul Boyer received his Nobel Prize, there was a speech by Professor Bertel Anderson of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. The speech was given and he gave the story in a brief summary of the rationale for the Nobel Prize in chemistry. So fast facts about Dr. Paul Boyer. He lost his mother just weeks after his 15th birthday. He noted how he went to um, Brigham Young University, then to University of Wisconsin-Madison for graduate school. He received several awards and won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. It's important to note that he also read the Book of Knowledge, which is an encyclopedia aimed at juveniles, first published in 1912 by the Groyler Society. And he also read the Harvard Classics, which is a very interesting book series that I'm going to embark on reading. The Harvard Classics, uh, originally known as Dr. Eliot's Five Foot Shelf, is a 51-volume anthology of classic works from world literature, compiled and edited by Harvard University's president, Charles W. Eliot, and first published in 1909. A short list of some of volume one, just volume one, the other volumes within the Harvard Classic series involve works by Benjamin Franklin, John Woolman, William Penn, so the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, the journal of John Woolman, Fruits of Solitude by William Penn, it also involves other, other seminal works, such as the Confessions by St. Augustine and The Wealth of Nations by Am Smith. Definitely a series worth reading. Um, now, this is how I would analyze a Nobel Prize Lord speech after the second time or third time reading it. And this is my perspective as a graduate student in chemical biology. So before we start, let's just keep in mind it's possible possible to read these things and to try and understand them with guidance and some research. So 
just a preamble on ATP synthase. So in order to understand ATP synthase, we need to understand that ATP synthase is a part of the electron transport chain. Um, the electron transport chain is organized in a particular way. It's established now that the electron transport chain is organized in which you have a respirosome supercomplex, which consists of complex one, three, and four. Um, it goes from one to three or two to three in terms of the flow of electrons um, throughout the complex. But without getting into the nitty gritty details, let's just focus on ATP synthase, which is complex five, and it's a complex of the ETC, as I said. ATP synthase is significant since it facilitates the production of ATP. Now, an overarching trend that goes along with the chemiasmatic hypothesis, which, is, which coincides with Mitchell's idea, who was a 1978 Nobel Prize laureate in chemistry, the exergonic flow of electrons fuels the endergonic pumping of protons. So some big ideas to keep in mind. Um, within this work or this lecture, he discusses that the enzyme uses a novel mechanism that has catalytic steps different from any that has been seen before with other enzymes. ATP synthase has three copies of a large alpha and beta subunits with three catalytic sites located mostly on the beta subunit at the interface of the alpha and beta subunits. So these are subunits of this enzyme complex. So remember, we're talking about high level structure, not really linear or, or primary or secondary structure, we're talking about higher level structure. And it's also important to keep in mind that oxidative phosphorylation, um, it's an oxidative process, of course, it is biochemically significant because it produces a substantial amount of ATP. ATP is important since it's a common energy currency in the human body that in many cases is coupled to thermodynamically unfavorable processes so that they can work or run more efficiently. So in this talk, we will talk about why should we care, what the three points that stand out to me as a chemical, chemical biology graduate student, and what are the implications. So let's begin. Um, so let's narrow in, narrow in some more. We're looking at the mitochondria, which is a very significant organelle. We could talk about the mitochondria in terms of distribution, in which you have heteroplasmy or homoplasmy, in which you have different distributions or same distributions of DNA. Homoplasmy, same, hetero, different. Um, we could also talk about the mitochondria and its intricacies in which you have significant phospholipids that make up the inner membrane, such as cardiolipid. We could talk about the mitoribosomes. We could talk about the crystalline membrane. We could talk about the power of the mitochondria and that the DNA of mitochondria is normally maternally inherited. We could also talk about mitochondrial diseases. But today, we're talking about ATP, ATP synthase. So ATP synthase. Um, Let's dive into Dr. Paul Boyer's lecture. Um, he spoke about how it's a key player in the processes. Um, ATP is a key player in the processes. And the abbreviation for ATP, abbreviation of ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. So adenosine triphosphate, if we break it down, it is made up of the adenine base, which is a double ring um, functionality, and it's bonded to the ribose sugar or the oxyribose sugar, and then you also have the phosphate. So it has adenosine triphosphate has three phosphates. So he then he goes on to discuss how when he was a graduate student, Fritz Lippmann, big name, recognized the broad role ATP played in biological energy capture and use. The adenosine portion for our purposes can be regarded, as Paul Boyer speaking, 
can be regarded as a convenient handle to bind the ATP to enzymes. It has three phosphate groups attached in a row, particularly the last two that participate in energy capture. And we normally see that as the pyrophosphate. When the energy stored in ATP is used, the terminal anhydride bond is split, forming adenosine diphosphate and inorganic phosphate. The resynthesis of ATP coupled to energy input, this is a key idea, is catalyzed by an enzyme called ATP synthase, present in abundance in intracellular membranes of animal mitochondria, such as humans, such as in humans, plant, chloroplasts, bacteria, and other organisms. So these are good ideas to keep in mind. The ATP made by your ATP synthase is transported out of the mitochondria and used for the function of muscles, brains, and other tissues and organs. Um, the ATP, ADP and phosphate formed when ATP is used um, is returned to the mitochondria and ATP is made again using the energy from oxidations. So let's continue on. Um, so this process is ubiquitous uh, for the most part. Um, all living cells contain hundreds of large specialized protein molecules called enzymes. So enzymes are globular proteins. Enzymes are very important in the body. They help to catalyze thermodynamically unfavorable processes. They serve as biological catalysts in which they reduce the E of A by the activation energy or provide an alternative pathway um, for the reaction to occur. Um, enzymes are very important in the body, whether it be in processes such as respiration, digestion, a lot of biological processes are run with the machinery of which you consider to be enzymes. and catalyze hundreds of reactions. So the important and very difficult question that remained unanswered, and Paul Boyer spoke of this for many years, was how the ATP synthase uses the proton motor force to make ATP. Um, so as he was speaking, he, sp he mentioned how um, ATP, during net ATP synthase, synthesis, the three catalytic sites in the enzyme acting in sequence first bind ADP and phosphate, then undergo a conformational change so as to make a tightly bound ATP, and then change conformation again to release this ATP. Let's keep reading. These changes are accomplished by a striking rotational catalysis. And we'll talk more about that in a later episode. Driven by a rotating in the core of the enzyme. So this is coinciding with the ideas that we consider now in which ATP synthase is considered to be a molecular motor or a pump, um, which in turn is driven by the protons crossing the mitochondrial membrane. Um, you know, he mentioned how these unusual features are energy-linked binding changes that include release of a tightly bound ATP, sequential conformational changes of three catalytic sites to accomplish these binding changes, and a rotary mechanism that drives the conformational changes. These features had not been recognized previously in enzymology. That's something similar, I would say so myself. Um, here we have a picture of the uh, layout of ATP synthase. So let's take it back a bit. In the mid-1950s, um, some 12 years after Paul Boyer received his PhD, um, some experiments on how ATP is made were conducted in his laboratory. Um, one concerning the capture of energy in glycolysis, which we know is an anaerobic, typically an anaerobic process, in which you have a, a small amount of ATP that's made. Um, glycolysis typically takes place in the cytoplasm of the cells. Glycolysis is important. Um, we go from glucose to pyruvate, passing through a variety of me 
enzymes. So from, let's just go through glycolysis quickly. Glycolysis in which you have glucose, so the use of hexokinase is converted to G6P or glucose 6-phosphate. Um, using phosphoglucoisomerase, we go from glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate. Using phosphoglucokinase, we go from fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Using aldolase, aldolase spits out um, DHAP, dihydroxyacetone phosphate, and G3P. Using trials phosphate isomerase, we interconvert um, DHAP to G3P. Using GAPDH or glyceraldehyde phosphate dehydrogenase, we convert G3P to 1,3-BPG or 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Using phosphoglycerate kinase, we produce 3-phosphoglycerate. Using phosphoglucomutase, we produce 2-phosphoglycerate. Using enolase, which proceeds through an E1-CB mechanism, we produce PEP or phosphoenol pyruvate. And using pyruvate kinase, we produce pyruvate. Pyruvate kinase then shuttles or then goes through um, pyruvate dehydrogenase to produce acetyl-CoA that feeds into the TCA cycle in which you have oxaloacetate combining with acetyl-CoA to form citrate to the enzyme citrate synthase. So that's just a recap of glycolysis and significance in aerobic respiration. So we found that, going back to the lecture, we found that the oxidation of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate to occur without the participation of inorganic phosphate. This is him noting this, suggesting participation of an acyl enzyme intermediate. Extension of these experiments and salient findings in the Raqqa group, again, we have a big name, demonstrated that a sulfahydryl or sulfahydryl group on the enzyme was acylated and the acyl enzyme was cleaved by inorganic phosphate to form 1,3-diphosphoglycerate, which in turn transferred a phosphoryl group to ADP to make ATP. Key idea, take note of this. Demonstration that two covalent intermediates, the acyl enzyme and the phosphorylated substrate, preceded ATP formation, made it seem logical to seek for similar intermediates in oxidative phosphorylation. So established conceptual precedent led to further investigation. That's what this is saying. And as we and others learned years later, this was not a useful approach. He said it. So of more relevance to ATP synthase were experiments in which you had the isotope of oxygen, 18 oxygen, and 32 phosphate. Um, those are the radioisotopes initiated because of the demonstration by Mildred Kahn that mitochondria would catalyze a rapid exchange of phosphate oxygens with those of water, phosphate and oxygen with those of water. So we found that the phosphate experiments um, were using the overall reaction of oxidative phosphorylation was dynamically reversible, which makes sense. Um, it was some 16 years later that we found that the simple explanation that no intermediate was formed and that rapid exchange resulted from the rapid and reversible formation of a tightly bound ATP. So moving along, let's talk about the catalytic sites. Um, Dr. Boyer, further went on to say in his lecture that chemical derivatization studies such as those in Bragg's laboratory, again, we have a big name, and summarizing in his reviews that he referenced, showed that all three 13 subunits, although with identical amino acid sequence, had distinctly different chemical properties. That is something to take note of. 
We were also impressed by the studies. They were also impressed by the studies of Fitte's laboratory showing that one defective mutant 13 subunits stopped catalysis. And bi-related mutational studies in Siemens laboratory that favored the participation of three equivalent 13 subunits for catalysis. So the conclusion that you reach is very likely is that it's very likely our three sites participate in an equivalent mana. Subsequent events have strengthened this conclusion, um, although he said that some doubts remain of which he was not aware of at the time. The probability that three sites participate equivalently has guided experiments in his laboratory since the presence of three 13 subunits first seemed likely. So he also spoke about the rotational catalysis within this enzyme. Um, some ideas to mention is that there were related experiments that took place in this laboratory with sodium-potassium ATP synthase. Um, that's something to note. So what three points stood out or stand out to me? The intricacies of ATP synthase. The idea that all living cells contain enzymes, and these enzymes are very important, especially in biological reactions. And also, um, or finally, oxidative phosphorylation is important. Additionally, with ATP synthase um, and how it proceeds with its mechanism of catalyzing the formation of ATP. So what are some implications? When it comes to disease etiology, whether it be Alzheimer's, neuro neurodegenerative diseases, or other diseases that can be uh, attributed to mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial disease, or whatever the case may be, and of course, that's to the bioenergetic paradigm. Um, whatever the case may be, ATP synthase is very important because it produces a key energy currency in the body that is used and is coupled to a lot of reaction. So it pays to understand these things. So I told you what, why we should care. It's an important enzyme in biological reactions. Well, three points is still to me. The structure of the enzyme, the intricacies of it, um, the fact that enzymes are very important in biological reactions and also oxidative phosphorylation, which is catalyzed, which involves ATP synthase, is a very important process. And what are the implications? The implications for disease etiology, disease, or, or looking at the origins of diseases. So here we have it. Paul Boyer's lecture, a summary in the eyes of a chemical biology graduate student at this time. Hopefully it helps. So... If I was to address this, or if I was categorizing it, or breaking it down for kids, for example, um, ATP synthase is important. This enzyme, or this machine, or this protein is important because it produces or helps it to form or facilitate the formation of a key energy currency or a key molecule that is important in the body. So that's for the kid. For high school student, this is important because it's associated with something that we learned about known as respiration. Respiration involves how the body is able to produce energy from food. So for the graduate student, the lecture is important. It produces seminal ideas or it introduces seminal ideas that are helping us to this day and informing our work. So thanks again for listening. So once you have it, this, again, you have it. This is the New Chemist podcast um, in which we discuss uh, chemistry, which simply put is the science of change. And we also discuss ideas such as 
research, careers, COVID-19, and a variety of other ideas within the realm of science. We've had guests. This is within the Think Tank series. Of course, we reference the work of Dr. Paul Boyer, the lecturer, which is, our, which is publicly available on the Nobel uh, Foundation's website. And also we reference a book that outlined the lecture and speech, the introductory speech by the Dr. Bertil Anderson. So, Professor Bertil. So thanks again for listening. Hopefully this benefited you. Hopefully it helped. Stay tuned. This is just a preamble to more that will come. Also stay tuned because this upcoming week and the weeks to come, we will have interviews by Dev Mandavia, interviews with Dev Mandavia, um, Julio Rodriguez and Janae Burroughs, who are all leaders in their own age and stage and right. So thanks again for listening. Just to note, the views on this podcast reflect those of myself and my guests. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Silas Cook. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Cook began his academic career at Reed College in 1995. After earning his BA in 1999, Professor Cook took a position at the Genomics Institute of Novartis Research Foundation in San Diego, California. There he worked to unravel various signal transduction pathways related to kinase and GTPase cell signaling. In 2001, he began his graduate studies in total synthesis at Columbia University in New York. Under the auspices of Professor Samuel J. Danishevsky, upon the completion of his PhD in 2006, he took a postdoctoral position in the laboratory of Professor Eric Jacobson at Harvard University. In 2009, Dr. Cook became his independent, began rather, his independent appointment in the chemistry department at Indiana University. Please welcome Dr. Thanks, Dr. Cook, for joining me today. It's so good to have you on. So, Dr. Cook. So good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, yes, yes. So, Dr. Cook, um, what have been your longstanding interests in the field of science? 
Um, so I have pretty varied interests in the field of science. I think uh, human biology is tremendously interesting. And I think chemistry is a great way to probe human biology. Um, Non-human biology is also very interesting. Plant biology is very interesting. Uh, and I think chemistry is a great way to probe and understand plant biology as well. Um, and so I think a lot of what drives our science or my thinking is how do we paint a clearer picture of how things work both within us uh, and around us. Okay, good, good. Um, so in terms of uh, a clearer picture, what, what specifically are you referring to? You said you paint a clearer picture of those things around us and within us or? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so how, how, how do things work, right? So okay. we, we have pretty vague general ideas of how certain cells work in concert in order to uh, make up an organ, but we don't really have a good idea about how they communicate, what chemical messengers are used in communication uh, in order to control a wide swath of cells that might be an organ or might be an organelle in the, in the, in the, in plants, for example. Okay, so so being able to understand those things, understanding how chemicals uh, orchestrate huge numbers of cells on the order of trillions of cells uh, at the same time, both in, in humans and plants is tremendously inter interesting. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so along the same line, along the same uh, direction, um, would you say your research interest first started there around the desire to create a clearer picture of what's occurring on in biology and chemistry? Or would you say it was more from like your upbringing that uh, caused you to have the research interest that you have now? Um, it's always difficult to pinpoint um, where your interests get started, right? Because you're, you're always refining your interests, becoming interested in new things, new ideas, new concepts. Uh, but I grew up on a farm, right? Okay. And I think uh, as a farmer, uh, you sort of have an inherent interest in how the world works and how things develop both from a plant standpoint and from a human standpoint. Uh, and understanding how those things manifest, how they interact, how they get along, um, symbiosis, as well as you know, trying to kill one another, uh, mm -hmm. is all, all based on, on chemicals. Uh, and so yeah. understanding these chemical messengers, these chemical uh, um, communication that occurs between cells uh, is hugely important. Yeah, I agree. So um, along that same line, uh, what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date? What would you say have been some of your most effective and impactful ideas within the scope of your research or within the scope of your academic career thus far? That's a great question. And I don't know if I can put a finger on a single event. Um, I think probably some of our most impactful work in terms of being adopted by other chemists, being used widely in industry, uh, came from my students. Uh, they're not my ideas, they're my students' okay. ideas. Um, okay. and so I think one of the most important roles that I play is not necessarily coming up with ingenious ideas,
but creating an environment where students can do their best, come up with their best ideas and, and move the field forward. Um, I, I try to um, create as many environments as possible where people can speak their mind uh, without fear of, you know, condemnation or, or, you know, being belittled or anything like that, such that good ideas bubble to the surface. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a, a great idea isn't necessarily great upon first inspection. Uh, I, I like to tell people that I have a trash can full of good ideas. It doesn't mean they actually worked in real life, right? Mm -hmm. And so actually getting an idea to work in lab is hugely important. Uh, and it's driven entirely by students, postdocs, undergraduates, the whole, uh, the whole environment that we work in. Uh, without that environment, uh, we just have ideas on paper and that doesn't mean anything. That's true. That's very true. So, Dr. Cook, um, I know you've done a little bit, uh, done some work in uh, radical chemistry. So, why spend time researching radical chemistry? So, we spent a lot of time trying to teach transition metals that are good at radical chemistry how to do two electron chemistry. Okay. Um, and it turns out that it's really difficult to teach these metals to do two electron chemistry when really what they want to do is single electron chemistry. And so it was around probably 2014 uh, that I realized that we were trying to teach a fish how to climb a tree uh, mm -hmm. and, and the fish realized it wasn't very good at that job. Uh, and so why not uh, go with the flow and let the fish swim uh, and, and when we did that, we found that metals like iron and manganese are tremendous single electron uh, uh, redox wells of, of reactivity. And we can employ that reactivity to forge really difficult carbon-carbon, carbon-fluorine, carbon-oxygen, carbon-nitrogen bonds uh, that we wouldn't be able to do with two-electron chemistry that is traditionally uh, used in palladium, even nickel, uh, platinum, rhodium, ruthenium catalysis. Okay. Okay. So it's interesting that you say that, you know, because when I hear about these one electron processes that we do in the lab that we, uh, uh, we use metals for, it almost seems similar to like what occurs in the electron transfer chain in which you have iron sulfur clusters and stuff like that. So definitely interesting. So in terms, in layman's terms, uh, what impact does this work within uh, this work with uh, radical chemistry? What impact does it have? So, or what are the, the implications? Right. So, so in layman's terms, um, we're interested in making bonds that people care about. Okay. Right. Okay. And so, the pharmaceutical industry, the agri-sciences industry, the academic industry, the materials industry are all trying to make things of relevance. If you're in the pharmaceuticals industry, you might be trying to make a small molecule drug. You might be able, to, you might be trying to make a macromolecule. Uh, but the bottom line is you're trying to make new bonds of interest, right? You're trying to create chemical matter that will um, modulate whatever activity you might be interested in. 
uh, and that's true of, of agrosciences, that's true of materials. And so if you look at Lipinski's rule of five, right, where molecules, small molecules under a molecular weight of 500, uh, C log P of greater than a certain benchmark um, and so on, you have roughly 10 to the 60th organic molecules that you can make. Mm -hmm. And so 10 to the 60th is a pretty large number. Most people aren't used to working with numbers on that scale, but to put it in perspective, right? The universe is about four times 10 to the 18th seconds old. And so that means you could make a new molecule every second since the big bang occurred and you wouldn't even be scratching the surface of potential small molecules that fit Lipinski's rule of five. Um, and so another way to phrase that is you could spend your entire life making molecules no one cares about. Mm -hmm. So why not make molecules that people care about? Uh, and so we really take our cues from medicinal chemists, from process <laughs> chemists, um, across a wide range of industries to see what they're struggling with, to see what bonds they have to take multi-step to get to. Uh, and we try to simplify that. And radical chemistry uh, with the transition metals that we use tends to simplify synthetic sequences. And so, you know, what used to take five, 10, 15 steps to make, you know, we make in three, four or five steps. Wow, that's good. Uh, and, and, and that makes a big difference to practicing organic chemists, people out there in the real world that are actually trying to access a specific chemical environment, a specific chemical space. Um, and so we take that very seriously uh, and so we're constantly combing through the medicinal chemistry, the process chemistry literature, mm -hmm. looking for areas that are underdeveloped, areas that process chemists or medicinal chemists are struggling with. Um, and, we, and we try to improve uh, both step counts, yields, um, and obviously uh, synthetic uh, Utility. to get there. So um, I just have, I have a question along the same lines. Um, would you say that your radical chemistry uh, is more effective in the realm of hydrogen abstraction or carbon-carbon bond formation or which bonds do you say primarily are the ones that it really has the most effect on or it really has been beneficial for? So, so certainly CH functionalization has been important to our group over the last five or so years. Okay. Right, and, and, and I, I do think being able to take uh, common heteroatoms, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and using those heteroatoms to abstract hydrogen atoms nearby to then reveal a carbon-based radical that can be functionalized uh, with transition metal chemistry to forge new bonds um, has been hugely important to our group um, and to a lot of other groups as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so David Naguib, Jenny Roizen at Duke University and others have, have used this uh, hydrogen atom abstraction technique uh, to functionalize SP3 hybridized CH bonds. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, prior to our work and others work in this field, um, generally you would use a two electron, three atom uh, oxidative addition type mechanism to functionalize a CH bond. And that worked quite well for sp2 hybridized CH bonds, but it didn't work so well for sp3 hybridized carbon atoms. Um, and so this hydrogen atom extraction and functionalization uh, really um, took off when, once you used H atom abstraction as the tool to functionalize those SP3 hybridized systems. Okay, yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, going in a different direction, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, I really don't. Um, so, so as I mentioned previously, uh, I, I like students directing their own projects, right? And okay. so I, I, I really try to act more as a consultant on their work okay. as opposed to an advisor that has a top-down iron fist approach to their project. Uh, and, and, and so, a lot of times projects develop in unusual ways that I didn't anticipate at the outset. And students really make the big picture decisions on where to take that chemistry. Um, and I'm just along for the ride. I just sit back <laughs> and, and get excited about the work. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so for me, um, I don't know that I have so much a big picture, steer everything in a certain direction approach okay. uh, as I do uh, sit back and, and let the, the smart people in the room, namely my students, take over and dictate okay. decisions and directions for a project. Okay, that's, that's definitely one approach. You, it, seems, it seems as if uh, you kind of let things, let things flow naturally then. Yeah, I mean, they zig and they zag, right? Um, so yeah, that's true. sometimes projects uh, we have that seem very, very exciting uh, are moving in the right direction. We're, we're over the moon about the potential uh, that end up in a, you know, burning car crash at the bottom of a hill. Um, wow. And that happens, right? Yeah. Um, and, and there's not much you can do about it. Uh, the science mm -hmm. is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's other times where we think things a relatively sleepy result, not very interesting, ends up, you know, driving a whole new wing of the of the group. Um, and, and those are very exciting. And so the most important thing is just to keep an open mind. Yeah, right? yeah. Keep an open mind, let the data soak in uh, and go where the data tells you to go. I agree, yeah. So I have a question. What do you say as being a big player in your research exploits? Would you say the fundamental science concepts or would you say the advanced ideas that uh, take place in, within the literature? Or what has been like uh, overarching thing? Because uh, from my understanding, uh, from my discussions with other people, it's talk about how fundamental science plays a large role in what they do on a daily basis. Uh, sure, I think fundamental science uh, drives everything at the end of the day, oh, yeah. um, but day to day, you might have a plan 
in order to achieve some outcome. But you have to be able to throw that plan in the trash and move with what the fundamental science tells you to move on. Um, you know, we're interested in new information, certainly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all want to refine and develop a better understanding of the world around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that through shrewd experimentation. Mm-hmm. That said, um, you can spend a lot of time developing a fundamental understanding of something no one cares about. That's true. Uh, and so don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. what, what you want to do is, is spend some time trying to develop a fundamental understanding of a process, a reaction, a biological phenomena uh, that people care about. Right. Hey. Um, and, you know, you, you brought it up earlier in terms of single electron chemistry, but, you know, the Krebs cycle is hugely important, right? Uh-huh, hugely it is. Important. Yeah, from citrate to oxaloacetate. And, and, yeah. and, and, and there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful chemistry, beautiful biology that was mm-hmm. developed along the way to understand the Krebs cycle. And mm-hmm. that is a completely meritorious you know, work on the TCA cycle, understand how that works because it is so fundamental uh, to the world um, that it, it, it warranted the extra time spent developing uh, carbon labeling studies to follow the carbon footprint and the Krebs cycle to work out the stoichiometry. Uh, all of that was fundamental science, but it was on a process of huge importance. And so, yeah, exactly. So, so if you if 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 you have the right problem, you can pull out all the stops and and study the the smallest of details in that process, and all of it benefits mankind, right? But but if you work on something nobody cares about, you can still pull out all the stops. (laughs) You can still Mm -hmm. spend a lifetime. Uh, working out the details, but at the end of the day, um, if no one's going to use your uh, technetium catalyst to do mm-hmm. what you spent a lifetime working out to do, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. That's true. It has to have so, so societal relevance. Um, so um, my question to you is, um, how do you maintain, given that you allow your students to direct certain projects how do you maintain vision and teamwork in your environment how do you make sure that everyone's working together as a collaborative spirit within your group how do you maintain that yeah that's a great question and i think that's an ever-changing question certainly in the time of covid Um, yeah i agree i agree and so I, i i wish i knew the magic formula that would breed cohesion in the group um but to be honest, I, I think I failed my group uh, during the time of, of COVID. Um, you know, we, we used to have a lot of uh, group activities in terms of problem solving, idea generation, um, subgroup meetings, all of these things where we could get together in a room with a chalkboard uh, and, and develop ideas and, and, and develop hypotheses 
And I was never really able to recapitulate that in a virtual environment. Um, and I, I would say that probably morale in the group is at an all time low. Um, we've done online Zoom type activities. Um, we've tried problem solving online. We've tried uh, idea generation online and it just does not work the same as everyone being in the same room with a chalkboard or, or a couple sheets of paper and a pencil. Um, and, and so it's, it's been difficult. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, you know, it's good that you're being honest, Dr. Cook, but I would say this, you know, at, at least uh, one, one thing I can understand is, you know, challenges do allow us to grow, eh? They do allow us, they do provide a platform or impetus for growth. Yeah, so it's definitely, um, I appreciate your honesty, you know, because some people like to paint a picture that everything is peachy, dandy, rosy, and fine. But it's if not. it's not, it's not. Yeah, because COVID has been challenging for everyone, at least in, from everyone I've encountered, I should say. I can't speak for everyone, but the people I've encountered. Yeah, COVID has been a challenge, especially within yeah. the academic context. I, I, I think that's right. I, I think the challenge is actually being understated, quite frankly. Uh, oh. you, know, you have these big industries like, for example, accounting, banking, uh, finance, uh, computer science, for example, Silicon Valley, um, all of these industries have been pretty recalcitrant when it comes to offering online or at home uh, sort of Zoom uh, working environments. Mm -hmm. And those are the, the areas, those are the, the careers really that could benefit quite frankly, quite a bit from being online, from being virtual, right? I mean, you can do an Excel spreadsheet virtually. <laughs> um, you know, as you're editing it, other people can be looking at it. Everybody knows the syntax of Excel. Uh, and so it's actually quite amenable to, to at-home work or, or virtual work. Uh, chemistry is not. Yeah, that's right? true. Our, that's our true. environment is very, very different. Right, we're more we're more like a three M or a or a Boeing or you know some some of these companies that actually have to make things, um, and you can't do that at home, right? You can't take a five piece ton of titanium and hammer it into a plane in your house, right? That has to be done in a foundry. It has to be done in in a proper location, and it requires the coordination of a large number of people. Um, you know, we're fortunate in academia and that our groups are relatively small, but at the same time, it requires a high level of collaboration, of discussion, of, you know, face-to-face -face interaction, in addition to the long hours at the hood, the long hours doing experiments. Um, but if you have an experiment that you're going to set up, for example, that takes three hours to set up. Uh, you probably want to run that idea by one or two other people before you mm -hmm. spend three hours setting it up. Yeah, that's true. Right. And, and, and so losing that, uh, you know, immediate feedback loop, being able to bounce ideas off your lab mates, bounce ideas off of me, for example, 
uh, you know, just wandering into my office and asking a simple question about a simple reaction, uh, all of that being gone has hurt research. It's hurt progress. Well, so what's the plan then, Dr. Cook? I take it you haven't been able, for, you have not, I take it you have not, uh, uh, not considered a plan. What is the plan of action? I think it, a man of your expertise has, has probably some plan of action or has already enacted a plan of action already. Uh, right. What's the plan? So, so bef before I give you my plan, I, I, I want to give you a piece of data that I find pretty interesting. Um, so I taught two courses this spring semester, spring of 2021. One was completely virtual, completely online, and one was entirely in person. Um, I recently got my teaching feedback. So these questionnaires that we send out to students about the difficulty of the class, what they learned in the course, um, whether they had sufficient access to the professor, whether the learning objectives were, were clear and met during the course of the course. Um, and it was interesting to, in the same time period, compare this completely online class with a completely in-person class. In the completely in-person class, I got my standard reviews, which are, this is a very difficult class. Uh, the teacher was completely dedicated and made the information clear and, and understandable, uh, even though it was complex. Uh, and I really enjoyed the course. I would highly recommend it to other people, uh, et cetera. On my online class, it was the exact opposite. This was the worst class I've ever had. The teacher didn't make learning objectives clear. Uh, the teacher wasn't clear about uh, the information being disseminated, et cetera. And so it's, it's really interesting to see that A, I need more training on how to uh, develop a more successful online course, um, okay. which doesn't surprise me, but just the dichotomy <laughs> Just the dichotomy between online versus in person, you know, the same sort of information, the same uh, delivery uh, just does not translate over Zoom. Yeah, that's true. And I think that speaks. I think that sentiment is true in a lot of different areas. And it's true for a lot of different professors as well at other universities, too. I've heard similar sentiments from my friends who are taking classes on Zoom, as well as my siblings who I have uh, who are in school, they talk about how challenging it is to um, sit under Zoom instruction for hours and hours in high school. So I, I can even imagine when the concepts become more convoluted and more difficult, it's yeah, even more challenging. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So. Um, and so, so I've, I've also heard the opposite though. Uh, and so I was, I was talking to a faculty member in the Kelly School of Business this morning at a meeting I was at uh, and he said that actually his online courses uh, get reviewed better than his in-person courses. Uh, and his hypothesis, uh, which was presented to him by a colleague of his in the Kelly School of Business, was that he is much more intimidating and seems like a bigger asshole in person okay. uh, than he does online. And okay. so... <laughs> And, and, and so he, his online reviews were actually better um, okay. because he, he, um, he comes across as, a, as an easier to 
understand and get along with human being uh, over okay. Zoom than it does in person. Okay, well, that's that's a different perspective, completely, very sure. different. Yeah. So, um, in terms of as we wrap up, why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in? Was that because of your upbringing on the farm, or was it because you had a mentor, a high school teacher? What caused chemistry to be the particular for you? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I wish I had a short answer where I could say Mr. McReynolds in, in high school or whatever. Uh, old uh, McDonald or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But, but, but my, my answer is a little more convoluted uh, in that I, I, I was always interested uh, in science growing up, certainly. Um, in high school, I probably had the world's worst chemistry class available Whoa. in high school. Uh, so my high school chemistry class was taught by a, an assistant coach of wrestling um, at my school. And wrestling was a really big deal at my high school. We, we would send people to the Olympics, for example, straight out of high school uh, wow. from, from my wrestling team. So wrestling was far more important than chemistry, so much so that we only had four textbooks for the entire class of 30 high school students that took this chemistry course. So the um, wrestling coach thought it made the most sense to bolt those four textbooks to the benches in the chemistry lab. And we would spend our chemistry class reading with six or seven people around the same book, chapter wow. by chapter, every class. Wow. It was awful. Um, and so certainly high school chemistry did not turn me on to chemistry. Um, what did turn me on to chemistry is uh, I was able to double major in chemistry and biology in, in college. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was fortunate enough to take a position at Novartis um, in San Diego after college, where I was able to do in the lab both fundamental biology and um, organic synthesis. And what I learned during my undergraduate and my time at Novartis was that the questions you can ask in biology are very, very interesting, but the actual experiments you need to do in the lab to answer those questions are very, very boring. Um, and so running PCRs, growing up E. coli, uh, mammalian cell transfection, whatever it may be, is not very interesting. Uh, and moreover, if you're going to be isolating some DNA that you grew up in some bacteria, uh, you take an Invitrogen kit that says, use buffer A for this procedure and buffer B for that. And you don't even know what's in those buffers. Uh, so it was very black box and not very interesting. Whereas in chemistry, you can test your hypotheses very, very quickly, I learned. And so if you have an idea, if you think that you can make a bond or break a bond, you can go in the lab, mix some chemicals together, and then take an NMR, take a GC, take a mass spec, and literally within a couple of hours, be able to test pretty profound hypotheses very, very quickly. Moreover, if you need to do a particularly difficult experiment, 
you might need to blow some glassware, right? And so you can learn how to blow glass. You can learn how to make instrumentation. Uh, you can learn how to make custom uh, reactor setups to, to run a given reaction if, if, if you think stirring or, or light permeance might be an issue. Um, and all that is, in my opinion, great fun. Um, and so I learned pretty early on that uh, the day-to-day -day life in chemistry is a lot of fun and you can test hypotheses very, very quickly. Uh, whereas the day-to-day -day in biology is pretty boring. Um, and every six or 10 or 12 months, you might get an answer to a question you asked six or 10 or 12 months ago, which is a little too slow for my ADHD brain. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Um, so uh, my final question to you, Dr. Cook, this has been a, definitely an interesting interview to say the least. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate your honesty, really do, really do. It's very timely. Um, so what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? You obviously, you, you, you're, you're, you're doing a good bit of work doing research. You're a professor, full professor at IU, which is, has a really good chemistry department. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that to be true. So what has been some of the beneficial advice or the most beneficial advice you have received? Um, I, I received such great guidance from the mentors I've had in my life, quite honestly, uh, at the undergraduate level. Um, Pete Schultz at, at Novartis uh, was just a tremendous mentor uh, and had the most sage uh, one-liners that you can possibly think of. I, I really enjoyed that. My PhD advisor, uh, truly, truly amazing intellect. And again, outstanding one-liners. Um, you know, for, for, for example, one, one, one of the uh, uh, great pieces of advice I got from my PhD advisor was uh, to just make the bond, just put the two pieces together, glue them together if you have to. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't quite clear on what molecular glue I would need to use in order to make the carbon-carbon bond I, I was faced with. Um, but, but definitely he had some good one-liners. Um, and, and my postdoc advisor as well. I mean, you know, I, I, I've really been fortunate to be blessed with great guidance all along the way. And even once I started my academic career, not only did my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor continue to give me great advice, um, they, they also, you know, taught me how to seek out the advice I needed to be successful in my own career, right? There's okay. no, there's no one person in your life who is going to be your mentor in every aspect of your life, mm -hmm. right? You're going to need uh, an advisor for committee assignments. You're going to need advisor for grant writing. You're going to need advisor for new research directions. You're going to need an advisor for your personal life. All of these things are different people. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And just as we conclude, you know, you made the, I wish we had met Dr. Oxford. I wish I had asked this question earlier because you made the statement seeking out people that would give you the right advice or the advice that you need. How do you go through that process? How, how have you done that? Is it through, just through experience or is it through like you inquire or was it, was it, that's a guiding 
principal yes. lines? So, so I wish I could give you a, a, a succinct answer, but in, in, my, in my experience, in my life, one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses is that I don't get embarrassed. Hey. And so I don't care if I feel like a fool or look like a fool in front of anyone. And so That's powerful. That's that, powerful. Is, that is powerful. I can walk into anybody's office, no matter how high or low the ranking they are in the world um, and ask a dumb question. Uh, I feel yeah. perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, and most people don't, I've learned. Um, and so the drawback is that I don't actually recognize in other people that they might be reluctant to seek advice or reluctant to look like a fool in front of me or in front of someone else in the room. Um, and, and that's been a challenge for me to try to navigate, uh, to try to draw people out of their own shells to, you know, seek the advice that that they need, right? And so it's not often obvious what advice is, is going to tip the scales in your favor. And wow. so you need to take a lot of shots on goal. Sometimes you're gonna ask for feedback from someone who really doesn't give you the feedback you need, um, but you listen patiently, uh, you assess that feedback and you decide, is this someone I'm going to come to again in the future or not? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so, you know, in that way, uh, you know, I've probably sought out a hundred mentors uh, and I probably only have three. Right. Yeah, so, that's fair. So, so, you know, sometimes you have to look like a fool in order to get the information that you need to make the best decision that you need to make, uh, whether it be in your personal life, professional life, grant writing, uh, student recruiting. I don't care what the topic is. Right. Some people are going to have good advice and some people are going to not have such good advice. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is the new chemist where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Thanks for listening to the podcast series, The New Student Pharmacist where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. We are so glad that you were able to tune in today. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest, and I take care and all the best.